Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to start uh, back a few verses from our passage in verse 8 just to get us context and read down through our passage in verse 16 this morning. Here is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, More than this, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Let's pray, our great God. Would you stir our souls afresh with a thirst for you, a desire and a longing for you that comes only from knowing you and is created by you so that we can know you more and become more like your son. We praise you for your good work and we ask you to continue it here this morning in us. Build your church, fill the earth with your glory. Speak, O Lord, all of your people here gathered Together we agree and we ask this all to your glory and all God's people said, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Some years ago, social commentators uh, identified uh, a new pathology. Um, that's a surprise, isn't it? Um, a new pathology. Uh, this one, a little tongue-in-cheek, I think, was labeled affluenza. Here's the definition of affluenza. An array of psychological maladies such as isolation, boredom, passivity, and lack of motivation engendered in adults, teenagers, and, children's by the, and children by the possession of great wealth. That was one description of affluenza. Another going on. An unhappy condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. Hmm. Might I note for you that this uh, term was coined uh, just over 25 years ago. How much more today? Isolation, boredom, passivity, lack of motivation. Is that a trouble in our day? Dennis Johnson, commenting on our passage this morning, says, fixating on earthly things not only blinds us to future joy and to eternal glory, but it also dulls our taste even to the flavors of the present. How are you today? Do you have a taste for the glories of God in the midst of your daily life today? I hope you do. If not, then I hope the Lord might for me and for you renew that appetite, deepen our thirst, and create in us a new sweetness for more of him. Here at the climax of Paul's personal testimony in Philippians chapter 3, having related that though he once had everything, Paul tells us, it was nothing. It was nothing compared to having Christ. And now that he has Christ, ironically, you know what? There is nothing that he wants more than more of Christ. Your outline will help lead you through our passage this morning. It's quite long and involved, but uh, it makes it easy to walk through. First, the true believer always senses a gap. The true believer always senses a gap between current and desired experience. What is your spiritual experience today? Regardless of what it is, if you know Christ, there ought to be some sense of a gap between your current spiritual experience and your desired spiritual experience. This is what Paul writes here in verse 12. 
having mentioned how deeply he wants to know Christ and be like him, he says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it. Really? Really, Paul, not even you, not even the great apostle, not even the sacrificial at the cost of his life, risking his neck missionary who would give anything and has literally given everything for the sake of Christ, will eventually give his own life itself for the sake of Christ. Not even you have obtained it. Take it from this that if not even the apostle Paul has obtained it, that neither shall we. And this is what he's teaching them. I've not obtained this, not yet. You see, knowing Christ has, has brought Paul to a very, very different self-estimate than that which his previous Pharisaic training had taught him. Uh, look back up in 3.6. Uh, here's how he ends his, uh, his recitation of his accomplishments, his, uh, his spiritual pedigree. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Translation, I had arrived. I was there. Spiritually, I had, I had done it. I had obtained all that there was that, that through the law, the religious leaders had taught me I could attain. And I had it all until I, I found the one who was all, and he showed me I didn't have anything. Because I didn't have him. What a contrast that six verses later, not that I've obtained anything. Instead, he's going to say, no, I now have everything. And so I strive for so much more. Love the irony in the realities of the gospel and the spiritual dynamic and work at work in the heart of the human soul. Brother, sister, you have met Christ in meeting Christ, you have been brought completely to a new realization about yourself and about the world around you. You have, a, you have a new estimation about who you are, a far more humbling one, a far more real one, a far more sobering, but a far more life-giving one. That life is not found, it is not attained in what you accomplish or what the world can offer. Oh, these, these are as... Uh, one person has described it. These are, these are but the garnish of what life is meant to be. You don't go out for fine dining and, uh, and meal on uh, you know, the little sprig of parsley that's there on the side of your plate and go, boy, that was a good meal. No, it's, it's meant to flavor life. It's, it's, it's meant to augment the taste of that which is truly life. It's, it's meant to set the table for the real meal of Christ himself. All of his gifts are just a pointer to the giver. And so we always in this life, if we know Christ now and we have this new realization, we sense a gap. I, I, I don't care how incredibly faithful you've been in following Christ. This may have been the best week of your life. Praise God. I hope it has been. There's still a gap. For, for your longing for the Lord. This may have been the most pathetic week of your life. I, I, I will tell you, I did some things for, for Lent. I, I kind of did my own personal little Lent, not because the Bible said I had to, but just between me and the Lord, I wanted to do something in that season leading up to Easter. And it was sweet. There were some things I did that were rich. They were helpful. They were great adjustments. They were, they were good in encouraging my love for the Lord. And then Easter came, and I stopped them. And the last week has been really difficult. <laughs> I'm like, why did I stop? If it's been the most difficult, stress-filled, apathetic week of your spiritual experience, there still should be a, a yearning, a longing, a sense of a gap between what you want it to be. When you, when you lose that yearning, that's the time to be afraid, be very afraid, right? A true believer always senses a gap between current and desired experience. Paul says here in 12 then, now let's get into where he's going. Not that I've already obtained it. Great. What is the it? You would think that's obvious because he talks about it all over the place in these um, five verses. Everything is about the it, and yet he never explains the it in the verses, 
So you have to do some interpretation. I'll tell you my best take on the it, and I've read several different people's take on the it, and I was encouraged that their it's lined up pretty well with my it, so I think this might be it. What is the it that Paul says he hasn't yet fully obtained? Well, I think it's two things. It's to know Christ, and it's to be like Christ. To know Christ. Why do I think? Because what he's been saying in verse 8, more than that, remember when Paul learned to count? Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ, right? That's what he's been talking about. I want to know Christ. In verse 10, that I may know him. But Paul, you already know him. Yes, I do. And that's why I want to know him more, because I already know him. I, I don't know. Did you, uh, did you find the person of your dreams? Spend weeks and months planning a ceremony? Gather all your friends and neighbors together. Spend a lot of money. Dress up really nice. Come together and say, I do. And say, you know what? Now that I know you, pretty much for the rest of my life, I'm done. I, we don't need to talk anymore. We don't need to hang out, right? No. Knowing you deep desire to know you and so that's how it is how much more with Christ the knower of our hearts the savior of our souls <laughs> the maker of our way and not only to know him but to be like him as he has just said in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed to his death this conformity which is mentioned several times in Philippians in chapter 3, our bodies will take conformity to the resurrected body of Christ one day. Back in chapter 2, Christ, who was in the very form and essence of God, took on the very form and essence of a servant. And so we are being conformed in dying like Christ to be more like him. So this is what Paul is pursuing. And he says, I haven't yet fully obtained it. I don't know Christ like, I, like I'd like to know him. And I'm not Christ-like like I'd like to be Christ-like. And what a great gap that is to sense in our hearts. There is a, th a sweet thirst for more of Christ, more of his power, more of his fellowship, more conformity to him that resides in the breast of every true believer. This is the creed of every born-again child of God, that I may know him that I may be like him, that I may be conformed. This is the aim of every born-again child of God. There is, there is absolutely in this life a satisfaction in knowing Christ. There is a sweetness in spending time enjoying our Savior and knowing he knows us. There is a wholeness that he gives and our brokenness in Christ, our brokenness that he gives in Christ and yet there ever remains still a yearning, a yearning to know him more. The true believer always senses a gap. So what spurs us on in closing that gap? Believer, second, believer, God took hold of you so that you could take hold of him. What a great encouragement. Man, I wish I could know him more. I guess I'm going to have to totally get my life together, figure it all out, and, and absolutely become sinless if I'm going to make you know, any progress. No. Paul always starts his motivation. He always brings his imperatives and God's commands on the back of the reality of the work that God has already done, the presence of God already in the life of, of, of the Christian. Believer, God took hold of you so you could take hold of him. This is what he says, the second half of 12, not that I've already obtained it, or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. This, this idea of obtain or laid hold of, that, that word group is used three or four times in this passage, and good luck to the translators, because the context shifts, and it's super hard to catch it. Uh, in the same English words every time. We just don't have the right English word that works in every place. But verse 12 catches these two really well. 
he grabbed hold of me. So now I'm going to spend the rest of my life seeking to grab hold of him. That's what Paul tells us. It's the third time, by the way, we've seen this dynamic in the letter of Philippians. Of what God has done so that I can do. Remember chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you, he'll continue it so that now you have hope. How about chapter 2, verses 12 and 13? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because for it is God who is at work in you. So he's said that already. You can work because he is already at work. I can pursue, I can take hold of him because he's already taken hold of me. In fact, for this very purpose, he took hold of me. What purpose? What's the it again? To know him and to be more like him. This is the sovereign, good God who saved you, but then did not leave you in your newly saved state, but instead committed himself to you. He ever works. Listen to how elsewhere Paul describes this being taken hold of uh, by God. You can just jot these down. I'll read them to you. 2 Timothy 1.9. Timothy 1.9. God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God, who saved us, not by our works, but he took hold of us for his purpose, an eternal purpose. What an encouraging word to know that God has taken hold of us. That's great that the Apostle Paul senses and knows that. But isn't this the same thing that the Lord Jesus taught his faltering disciples? They who were so quick to turn away, to decide that um, maybe there's uh, better plans than uh, just watching their leader go to his death, um, higher ambitions for themselves than, than just following in those footsteps. But Jesus told them in the week before he went to the cross, John 15, 16. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and you would bear fruit and your fruit would remain. I have purpose for you. I have taken Hold of you and my work will continue in you till you bear fruit. What a great thing as a child of God that the Lord speaks this over us. You know, I don't have to recreate the wheel every week. I don't have to figure out in every new day, what do I need to do today to honor the Lord? I just have to follow. I have to be faithful. I have to be willing. He has taken hold of you. For such a purpose. Now notice Paul's God-given resolve in light of that. Thirdly, past failure, past failure can deter you. Past failure can deter you. Past victory can detain you. But grace is not done saving you. Thirteen. Brethren, I do not. Regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He repeats what he has just said. But now he gives us his clarity, his priority, his commitment. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Lord willing, we're going to pull apart a couple of these phrases and see what he's saying in this complicated but rich extended sentence. I have interpreted it this way. Our past failures can deter us, and our past victories can detain us. Paul says here, how do I press on? By forgetting and by stretching. Forgetting the behind stuff and stretching towards the going forward stuff. What does it mean that Paul forgets his past? Hey, man, you just need to forget all of that and move on. There's a time for that counsel, but let's not take Philippians 3, um, 13 out of context. Why do I say that? Because within the context of Scripture, could Paul mean here that he forgets everything that has happened before this time? Absolutely not. I can go up five verses, and I can see him recite 
all of his life before this. And he remembers all of it. And in remembering it, he is brought more to the foot of the cross because in grace he realizes all of my striving brought me nothing but emptiness. All of God's grace brought me the wholeness. So he remembers that. Elsewhere in Timothy, he'll recite his testimony and then he will say, I was a persecutor and a violent aggressor, but God showed me mercy so that in me, who was worst of all sinners, his mercy might be displayed to his glory. He remembers with, with clarity some of his past sin, some of his past confusion and delusion. The point is, his past failure cannot deter him. He will not allow it to do so. How about his past victories? Man, I kept the law better than anybody. I was born into the right family. I had the right social standing. I went to all the right schools. I earned all the degrees. I would walk down the street, and people in hushed tones would whisper my name to one another's ears. There goes the Apostle Paul. Sorry, there goes Rabbi Paul. wasn't the Apostle, though. He, 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 was, he was taught by Gamaliel. But he said, I won't allow my past victories my past successes to detain me. Do you? Do I? Man, you know, I'm not doing that well today spiritually, but I remember a couple of years ago I did something really spiritual, so I'm good. I, I remember those sweet days with, you know, n nostalgic, you know, <laughs> just, you know, meandering of thoughts to go, man, those were, those were good days. I liked those days. Ah. <sighs> So I'll rest on my laurels. No, not for Paul. You see, that's the point. Paul could have said after his first missionary journey, who's done more than I have for Christ? And who's done more than me? Who's suffered more than I have? Who's risked more? Who has shared the gospel more? Who has been more faithful? No one. Think I'm good. But he went on a second and a third and a fourth, right? And everywhere he went, he said, the love of Christ compels me share the gospel. So let's not let our past victories detain us. And so echoing what he said back in chapter 2, because I think the same idea is echoed here, what Paul is doing is he's pressing forward because he knows grace is not done saving him. And grace is not done saving you and not done saving me. And so, yeah, we remember with clarity our former life, but we use it as a spur to drive us more forward because we know now the one whom our soul loves. We know how lost we were, but now we're found. We know that all the good that we could accomplish on our own apart from Christ wouldn't really suffice. And we even know the good that we did in the power of the Spirit with the help of God to the glory of Christ. Even that, though wonderful and we should rejoice in it. <laughs> Don't you want more? That's, that's what Paul does. Forgetting in that sense what lies behind and stretching in that sense towards what lies ahead. Paul never whitewashes his past. He never ignores it. But in light of it, his gaze is ever drawn forward through Christ. Listen to Paul's own testimony of forward leaning in a well-known passage from 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9.19, though I am free from all men, Paul says, I've made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. What does leaning forward, what does pressing more to know Christ and be like him look like? Paul says sometimes it looks like just being a servant. Maybe, maybe even the scum of the earth, as he will call himself in another place. So that I might be used by God to win others. That's how I press forward. Or if you want a different metaphor than the servant metaphor, the race metaphor, which he uses here and loves so much. A few verses later in 1 Corinthians 9, 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. A world-class athlete will guard what she drinks and what she eats and make sure she gets enough sleep 
and she will train sometimes once, twice, three times a day, build her world around her regimen so that she could be the best of the best. He will learn the latest techniques and the trades, even hire coaches and go to specialists. He will get video of what he does to watch the proper technique so that he can excel. But they do it for a reward that's passing. That'll burn up. That will be quickly forgotten. Our reward won't ever be forgotten. I remember um, when I was in high school, uh, there was a, a family uh, in our high school that's pretty well known. I won't share their names because I don't have permission. Um, but they were well known, uh, the one boy, the two girls, and they were outstanding athletes, like, you know, state uh, state caliber uh, runners, and they did other sports. I remember the one daughter in particular who was my age, and I remember hearing, and this just, it blew my categories, right? It was a total paradigm shift for, for me, okay, at, at like 17 years old. Are you ready? She had gone at one point, like, like 18 months or two years without having a Coke. And that freaked me out. Like, I, I'm like, that's not even possible. Like, what human being? She had to be from another planet. I didn't even think that could be done, right? Tells you a little bit about, you know, where my, you know, commitment was. Um, but that was just crazy to me. I thought that was unbelievable. And she was, like, super nonchalant about it. She's like, that stuff will kill you. That's terrible for you. I, I want to run fast. Why would I drink acid, you know? I'm like, whatever. I'm going to go find people I can understand. What does it mean for you to run in such a way that you might win? See, this is where Paul is going to go here in this verse, next verse, I, ran, uh, I run so that I might win. What does it mean for you to, to press on in your reaching? What does that look like? So, so that you're not overwhelmed, so that I'm not just driven to uh, a, a legalistic performance. Remember how Paul grounds this every step of the way. God has already laid hold of you for this. So, so joyfully submit to what he has laid hold of you for so that you might more lay hold of him. Well, we'll come back to that idea as Paul will carry it forward. Fourth, Paul now describes the work of this sweet thirst in his life. Run for the tape. Run for the tape. That's what Paul does, and that's what it looks like when we have a sweet thirst. 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, what I want to do in this super complicated verse, because I, I read this passage, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and read it, and read it. And eventually, after reading it a whole bunch, I was really, really confused. Because I'm like, there's all these things that just seem like they just, like, mush together, and it gets super fuzzy. Um, here, here is what, what, what for me is a bit more clarity, and it's super helpful for me. Hope it's helpful for you. I want to separate the goal and the prize and the call in verse 14, okay? Because I will grant you, Paul is using language that is very much overlapping, but I think it's super helpful to see slightly different the goal and the prize and the call. First is the goal. Here, the goal is what he is pressing toward, and I think what he has in mind is that which he will experience in this life the knowing of Christ that we've just been talking about and the Christ-likeness that we've just been talking about, that he's been talking about. In the, in the pressing toward the mark, this is the, 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 the pressing on toward the goal. This is like the runner that rounds the last turn and they're looking down the straightaway and they can see the finish line. Okay, that's the mark. And he says, I, I spend my days with my eyes toward that. Okay, that's the mark in this life. Um, and, and it defines what he does. And it always works that right. It always works that way, right? Well, right uh, like as a kid, um, did, you ever, did you ever play, hey, I'll race you to that tree? 
Right? You, all the time, right? Race you to that tree, race you to the car. You're always, you're always racing to something. By the way, kids, can I just say this for kids in here? Please don't play, I'll race you to the tree. Okay, let me just tell you what. If you play, I'll race you to the tree. This is totally aside. This is not super spiritual. If you play, I'll race you to the tree, somebody's going to break an arm, okay? All right, so, somebody's going to urgent care, okay? Play, let's race past the tree, okay? Do you understand that? Good enough. I say all that to make the point. So focused are you on the end game, you will risk life and limb to be first one there, right? That's how it works. Race past the tree. So the runner striving for the finish line, stretching for the tape, right? Um, um, preachers uh, in the last few decades, you know, heaved a, a, a united sigh of sadness when they stopped, you know, putting little tapes across the finish line, right? Now, now you just do it by a, you know, laser beam thing, right? Because you could see that stretching to be the first across the tape, right? such a great analogy and that's what Paul is after here I, I press toward that mark so here's a question for us um, how much how much longer do you think you have how much longer I mean before you stand before him face to face and and are you pressing towards the mark because your days are numbered my days are numbered we don't have that much longer would you be like really quite at peace if if uh, if he came back today. Now, yes, you would be so at peace, and so would I. But would you be at peace with how you have lived? Or would you do something different if you, you knew that you had a, a limited amount of time left? How would that change? How would that change what I would do and how I would spend um, my time? It would change some things, I know that. How soon are you going to see him? Well, well, live in such a way as to be prepared so that at his return you can go I'm so grateful that you're here and I'm so grateful for how you've helped me know you to this point think about that day often it's the right thing to do that day will come soon won't it how near do you want to be to him is the question how near do you want to be to him the true believer always senses a gap between his current and his desired experience. Unless you have become confused, in which case you no longer sense that gap. But if you're not confused, you will sense it. And the result of that sense will be a sweet thirst for more of him, more power, more fellowship, and more conformity. Run for the tape. Second, cherish the prize. Cherish the prize. Here's how I understand this. He says, I'm running toward the mark for the purpose of the ultimate prize. Here, I think he has in view the eternal, after this life, experience of knowing him more and of being Christ-like. Paul will one day be fully conformed to the image of God's beloved son, Romans 8, 29, and so will you. You run toward this mark for the sake of that prize, which you and I will experience. And oh, friends, what great news that is because the most flailing, failing, hurting, stumbling, wayward child of God will be fully conformed to the image of the beautiful, glorious son one day. What a prize. We'll be in his presence in such a way to know him like none of us has ever yet known him. That is the ultimate prize. First John chapter three, the apostle John there gives us a picture of that ultimate prize. See how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Translation, what we see today, we can't even guess at what we'll look like one day. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We can only guess at what we're going to look like and what we're going to be like. We know that when he appears, 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope 
fixed on Christ purifies himself just as Christ is pure. In that day, when we see him, we will be like him, cherish the prize of being Christ-like in eternity. You won't be God. You won't be the fourth member of the Trinity, but you will be Christ-like in a way that you have never been, and you will know him, and that will be incredibly rich. Cherish the prize. Where have you been lulled to sleep? What is it that distracts you? What other prizes do you cherish in place? Where have you started to compromise? Run for the tape, cherish the prize, and then Paul now gives us his encouragement, and so I'm going to have you write it this way. When God calls, when God calls, all of creation trembles. When God calls, all of creation trembles. There's the goal, the prize, and the calling. Um, I, I, I don't love the way the NAS has uh, translated the latter part of verse 14 and some other translators as well, um, and I'll tell you why. Here's what it says, 14 again. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, if, you, if you wrestle through what it looks like it says, here's what it looks like it says. I press toward the goal for the prize, namely the upward call of God, okay? That's how it's translated, okay? It's a genitive, uh, and that's an explanatory genitive, but I don't think that's the way the genitive should be understood. Thanks for doing grammar with me this morning. I think this is a genitive of source. The point is, it's not that the, the prize is the calling. No, no, we are called to something, and the thing to which we are called is the prize. Does that make sense? That's why I, I don't like the genitive of explanation. The genitive of source is this. Um, press toward, I press toward the goal of the prize, um, which was produced by the call of God in Christ Jesus. The call of God in Christ Jesus, God's call on your life, is the source that will ultimately produce the prize. Okay? And so God's calling on your life now changes everything. I think it's the third or fourth place in this short passage that Paul here is just standing on the solid rock foundation of grace. And he's saying, it's God who called me to the prize. And because he has called me, I'll get there. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. And when God calls, all of creation trembles. God willed to call you to be his child. God determined to have you. Is there not profound security in that reality? And so now God works to bring you to himself. When God calls, all of creation says, yes, sir. That's the point. I press towards the goal because I want to receive that prize. And it's the calling of God in me that is the source, the impetus, the assurance that I will end up at that prize one day. I'll give you a couple other examples just from Paul, right? I don't have a lot of stories today because there's so many, so many illustrations in Scripture of Paul. Why would I go somewhere for other illustrations? 2 Timothy 1.1. Listen to the way that Paul introduces himself. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. What a throwaway phrase, right? An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Um, hey, I'm going to write you guys a letter and what I'm going to tell you um, it's the eternal truth forever from God that will never pass away. And you need to listen because I'm his messenger. I'm his ambassador. He called me to do this. I am an apostle. And how did I get here? His will. <laughs> and when God wills, then it happens. I mean, God spoke and there was. God said Lazarus and his dead body responded. When God calls, all of creation trembles. And that is your assurance and mine of the call of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, it wasn't his will to make me or you an apostle. But it was his will to have you and to have me. By the way, this, this will of God, which has made him an apostle, this is, this is Paul's entire argument for the book of Galatians, right? Over and over, he tells the, the Christians in Galatia, he said, look, I didn't receive this gospel from human beings. I got it from God. And so you can't change it. I can't change it. And that's his whole argument. He says, look, he, 
I remember I went up and I fought against Peter, the great Peter. Peter, like the, the, the leader, the spokesman, the mouthpiece of the apostles. I went and confronted him. Why? Because I wasn't afraid of, of men, because I was called by God. And when Peter messed with the gospel, I went and I said, dude, God has called, and this is the answer, not what you're doing. And elsewhere in Galatians, Paul says, remember Peter and James and John, those three guys, they came and they affirmed because they saw that what I was teaching was from God. The point in all of this is God had called Paul and it changed everything. And, and it defined who he was and how he lived and his life mission. And so it is for you. Called as a child of God defines everything. Listen to uh, some words about that in Ephesians 1. In Christ, Ephesians 1.11, in Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to God's purpose. He works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. There's divine purpose in that passage. There's historical result. We have obtained an inheritance. You already have an inheritance that in 1 Peter, Peter writes and says, it is reserved in heaven for you. You're like, well, if I have an inheritance, why am I living like this, right? <laughs> Not yet. Not on this earth. It's on the new earth and in the new heavens. It's reserved in heaven for you, imperishable and unspoiled and will not fade away. The salvation ready to be reveal, revealed in the last time. A divine purpose, a historical result, and an eternal culmination. God says, I'm going to spend all eternity showing forth my glory through you. Because I called and that defines you. And now you are my glory. God is glorified when we know him more when we reflect Christ more, this is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, okay? That's how I would wrestle through verse 14. And it's sweet for me because I'll, my whole life I've read uh, Philippians 3.14 and thought, well, that's confusing, but I get the main idea. I mean, I get, I'm going somewhere and it's cool and it's God and man, take me, let's go, right? But that's how I understand it. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus your brothers and sisters, has now launched you into a new trajectory. And when you and I try to live on a different trajectory, we chafe because it just doesn't work well. We don't experience joy and glory and peace and rest and fullness. I'm not saying it's easier. It's just infinitely better. Paul then continues to talk about the work of this sweet thirst in his life. Verses 15 and 16, true believers, true believers, though they stumble, they rise again and walk after Christ, even in spite of themselves. True believers, though they stumble, rise again and walk after Christ, even in spite of themselves. 15, Paul now having completed his example is going to turn to the final exhortation. Let us, therefore... As many as are perfect have this attitude, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard which we have attained. First, what in the world does Paul mean, um, as many as are perfect? This is a little play on words. Um, he's used this idea of being uh, perfect a few times already. He just said it in verse 12. He just said, I have not become perfect. So if Paul is not perfect... How does it make sense to say, hey, whoever of you guys is perfect, do this? Well, Paul, if you're not perfect, I don't think we are. And that's the point. Um, remember verse 6 I read earlier? As to the righteousness which is found in the law, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Here's the point. Paul has already said no one is perfect. But there are some Judaizers, some false teachers, who he mentioned back in verses 2 and 3, who might think that they are. Hey, good, you believe in Christ, you follow Jesus, that's great, that's awesome. But hey, let me tell you, here's how, if you want to know the one true God, here's how we've been doing it for centuries. You've got to keep the law, you've got to get circumcised, you've got to do all these other things. Paul says no. And if you think you are perfect, this is just a little hint, just a little aside to the false teachers. Wink, wink, I see you. Here's what you should do. Pursue this standard. That's one way to understand it. The other way to understand this uh, the word perfect is also translated in many places in the New Testament as mature. 
So it could just be that perfect is actually not a connection to what's in verse 12 and verse 6, but I think it is. But all on its own, he's just saying, look, those who are mature, look, this is what it means to be a true believer. Though you stumble, you'll rise again and walk after Christ even in spite of yourself. It's always been this way for followers of the one true God. We stumble, and yet he doesn't lose hold of us. See, that's why we can strive. Why, why run full speed ahead if I can trip? I had a buddy uh, first year in college that I'd known through mid-school and high school. Uh, he ran track at UNM, ran hurdles. Um, he clipped a hurdle. You know what happened? He went down and he shattered his forearm. That's a bummer when you're running really fast, right? Why would I want to run fast? If I strive really hard, that's a huge risk. Unless there is one who will make me rise again, who will pick me up and cause me to walk after him even in spite of myself. Proverbs 14, 16. For the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. That's always been the encouragement of the faithful in Christ or those who seek to be faithful is even though we stumble, we don't stay down. Psalm 37, 23 and 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord and the Lord delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. You ever, you ever had a toddler wrap their whole hand around your finger and then you grab their hand and you walk with them and sometimes you're going a little too fast for them and they fall like they're going to go down. It's like, oh, nope, nope, got you. Oh, whoa, nope, I, I got you. You can't fall. I have you. falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord holds his hand. And so Paul here, and I think the point is admitting that we are not perfect on the one hand, at the same time on the other hand saying this is what maturity looks like. It is to walk in this vein, to pursue, to stretch. We're, we will stumble, but the Holy Spirit living in us will cause us to rise again and walk after Christ, which is where he goes next. God, the Holy Spirit, will guide and persevere you. God, the Holy Spirit, will guide and persevere you. I know the Holy Spirit's not mentioned here, um, but I think this is his job that's described at the end of verse 15. Paul says, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. I love this encouragement. What humility. Paul says, look, this is the Christian life. I've just outlined it for you. Now, there are false teachers out there. There are some of you maybe listening to them who think my way isn't the best way. Look, 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 come here. Let me get you in a headlock and just noogie you until you believe. Is that what Paul says? No. That's all right. You just keep walking. The Holy Spirit will teach you. If, if you have a different attitude, a different mindset, a different thought, maybe, maybe you don't think we should strive so much. Or maybe it's not that point. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you think you are perfect or good enough. That's fine. God will reveal it to you. <laughs> Even the Apostle Paul himself said, you know what, there are certain things that I can't convince you of. And I won't try. I, I think God can do a good enough job all on his own. And so someone preaching God's word on Sunday morning, a dear friend sitting across the table pleading with you, a good Bible study lesson or a devotional that, that speaks something that pricks your heart and your conscience. And immediately in your self-defense, your flesh runs forward and says, yeah, no, I don't buy that at all. That's all right. The Holy Spirit's big. He's, he's good at convicting. Praise God that he is. He'll guide you. He'll guide me. 
persevere me even in my flailings and misunderstandings. Paul himself rests the, the Philippians in the sovereignty of God, and then he closes with these final words. Believer, keep walking this same truth that you have known. Believer, keep walking this same truth that you have known. 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. The NAS inserts the word standard, and it has it in italics to demonstrate that there's no Greek word in the original. But it's, it's put in in the English because it makes the sentence flow. He literally says, live up to that which you have attained. And what he's arguing, what is there in the Greek, is the same. What he is saying is, look, everything I've taught, you already know. Everything I've just said, you've already walked in it, but don't stop now. Don't be led astray. Don't forget. And by all means, don't get complacent in saying, well, yeah, I kind of already know that. Now, keep walking in this same truth that you have known. What a sweet encouragement for these Philippians. He tells them, you know what? I see growth in you. There's growth in your life. You have a knowledge of this work of God in you that you are working out. I see the striving in your life. I see the sweet thirst in your soul, and I know it's there. So close this morning by a couple of questions. What is it that has brought you deep satisfaction in Christ? Literally, what in your life has brought you closer, has brought you deep satisfaction? Then those are things to dwell on and pursue. What has whetted your thirst so that you say, I'm just more thirsty? Or maybe what is it that God has already been calling you to do with him? And you think, I'm just not sure I'm ready to do that. And he says, I know you're not, but that's why you're going to do it with me. Let's go do this. Keep walking in that which you have already known because you don't know the victories he has planned today and this week. And I don't want to miss out on them. And you don't want to miss out on them. A true believer always senses a gap between his current and desired experience. Unless you've gotten confused. There is in you a sweet thirst for more of him. More power, more fellowship, more conformity. And that is what Paul strives for. Stand with me and let's close together in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you have called us with a holy calling and that you will conform us to your son evermore and one day completely. Oh, how we want to know more of you, how we want more of your power, how we want fellowship with you in a real way, day in and day out. Father, I have played the fool this week. I have wasted time. I have sought after things not of you. I have not pressed forward at times. I have sat very complacently, but oh, Lord, pick me up. Hold my hand. Let me not fall headlong. Cause me to rise and walk with my Savior, whom I long to know more. You do this, and we thank you for it. We praise you, and we ask for more of this, all to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us. Have a